0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz.
1: This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Mischa Zelensky.
0: Sweden is often considered to be the heartland of social democracy, but that may no longer be the case. Benedikt Hügersen is a global expert in political campaigning. He has led national field campaigns for the Social Democrats in Sweden and is a leading thinker in political engagement strategies and tactics. An Australian-born Harvard graduate, Ben has trained activists in Europe, Africa and the Middle East. I caught up with Ben for a chinwag about the fall in support for the historically dominant Swedish Social Democratic Party, the rise of right-wing nationalists in Sweden, why party membership is critical to voting patterns, how face-to-face conversations are still better than digital campaigning tools, and what the future holds for mainstream European political parties of both the left and right. It's a fascinating in-depth insight into what is happening right throughout Europe. As ever, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review. It really helps. Enjoy the episode. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us here in Australia.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Now... uh... We might start with a little bit of your background because I think it's a somewhat curious one. So how does an Aussie uh, end up in Swedish politics? Because one, I'm curious to know about it, and two, how do I get the job? Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, um, yeah, like you said, I mean, I I, I didn't grow up in Sweden. I I grew up on the far north coast of New South Wales. And um, uh, I mean, I I think that the reason why I ended up in politics has a a lot to do with my, my background here in Australia. So when I was uh, about twelve years old, my my mother passed away with cancer, and my my dad was um, was pensioned. Uh, he got sick and couldn't run the family farm. And so when we grew up, this um, there was a recurring theme of of not having much money. And uh, there was one night in particular that I remember. Um, it was a very hot day, and you know Australia is great in in that respect, so I, I love the warm weather. Um, but what I love is when like, of an afternoon the temperature just drops. And then you get these fantastic thunderstorms that come in and you get this forked lightning and, it, and it's just such a, a spectacular light show. Uh, but on this night, I'm lying in bed and we're just about to go to sleep and um, the, a storm is raging outside and, and all of a sudden the whole roof blows off our house. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, me and my twin brother, we get out of there and uh, the family, we spend the whole night in the bathroom uh, uh, because that's, you know, the safest place in the house But I remember the next day, uh, I remember, you know, workers coming and and climbing up over uh, our house and they basically had this bird's eye view of of my room and, you know, where I sleep, my bed. And I remember um, looking at my bed and just sort of seeing it very tattered and broken. And uh, I was embarrassed. And I wasn't only embarrassed, I felt so powerless. Mm. And so um, I never really got involved in politics in Australia. Um, for me, that was that was something that you know other people did, um, but when I got to Sweden, there was a, a lot of people talking about a politician called Olaf Palme, and he was the prime minister of Sweden, and you know people seemed to love this guy, and I had no idea who he was. So one day I looked up on, on Wikipedia, I looked up um, you know who he was, and I started to read, and down the bottom of Wikipedia, there's a, there's a lot of different links. And so I look, at, click on one of these links, and I go into a website which is Olaf Palmer's International Center, uh, which is the aid organization for the labor movement in Sweden. And I see pictures of um, people that are held back by uh, structures, people that, that basically may mean that people are powerless to affect their own situations. Uh, so I see them, and I, I see sort of you know, other people. Uh, that are helping to remove these structures so there is some sort of uh, so people do feel empowered and oftentimes these people are the same people and so I could see myself in the people that were held down by structures but I could also see myself in those people that helped remove those structures and so that for me was really inspiring and so there and then I I basically signed up to the party Uh, The Social Democrats The Social Democrats, exactly and so Uh, After that, you know, I went to an education, to a a training that they had for uh, aid projects. And despite the fact I could not speak the language, I didn't have a project, I didn't have anything, they welcomed me with open arms. And when you get there, there there is such a a, a focus on people's movements, on getting people involved. And so when I was there, I, I met people and they just dragged me along to a meeting and you know all of a sudden you, you sit there and you start seeing how uh, people are writing motions and they they're getting them uh they're, they're sending them through the party and it's becoming party politics and you get this taste of democracy and you want more of it mm. and so that's why i you know why i got involved with the party and why i i have been involved with the party since then
0: now for for those that listening may not Completely understand the situation currently in Sweden. So maybe you could just quickly cover that off. I mean, I always joke that uh, most of the political parties in Sweden are all to the left of the Labour Party. But uh, <laughs> I mean, currently uh, the Social Democrats are in government, but they're a minority government. Maybe you could just quickly just cover that off before we dive into you know, what else is happening.
1: Yeah. So I can begin by saying the the Swedish Social Democrats have been the most successful democratic political party in the history of the world, and. They, they have pretty much. I think the Labour Party. We also claim that, but we can have, we can arm wrestle for it. But <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. so basically, since the 1920s, 1930s, uh, the Social Democrats have been in power in Sweden, pretty much unbroken. Yeah. And and so um, what what's been happening recently is that um, uh, that hegemony has been has been changing, has been loosening up, and so. Uh, what we find now is that um, we have gone from a party that's been about 45%, and that's great because we could, we could govern on 45% because we had a leftist party to the, to the left of us that would just you know, accept everything that we wanted to do, to slowly but surely uh, going down in you know, getting uh, smaller and smaller election results and then having to start bringing in other parties into our, our coalition. So we started with the Greens, um, but our share of the vote has sunk so much now that in the last election we were very, very lucky to form government. It took three months for us to form government. And uh, what we've had to do is actually start uh, negotiating with some of the, uh, the neoliberalist parties. And the reason why we can negotiate with these is that there has been a dramatic uh, increase in right-wing populism in Sweden. So we have had a um, uh, we've had a traditionally the the moderates who have been our our, uh, our opposition, um, who have basically now been dwarfed by a a, a, a far right party, and so this far right party in the last week has actually become the the largest political party in polls in Sweden, and for us, I mean that's a um, that's a, that's a bit of a defeat defeat because we've always been that party, and so. We're sitting there now with um, with a, a, a progressive bloc that, that has to negotiate with a neoliberalist bloc to hold out the conservative bloc. Mm. And this conservative bloc hasn't existed in Swedish politics for a long time, but they are becoming the most powerful bloc in Swedish politics. And so what is happening then is that now that we're having to negotiate with neoliberalists, we're having to negotiate away a lot of things that, that we went to to the election on, that we are, are very, very dear to us as a political party, but it is becoming very, very, it's, it's becoming a, a solution that we have to have if we do not want a far right government.
0: And this increasingly is a challenge for a lot of what not social democratic parties globally mm. have uh, been in decline. Of course, we lost the election here in 2019, but um, this is a challenge throughout Europe. Uh, with the traditional uh, centre-right parties in many cases disappearing or being cannibalised by far-right parties. what What's driving it in Sweden in particular? Uh, mm. Is there a particular issue that's driving this populism that you can see?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can look at this on many levels. Um, firstly, I think that the narrative that the right-wing, that the far-right is using is built on the narrative of the right-wing parties. So... To break down the social democratic hegemony that has been in Sweden, the the right wing party, the moderates, have um, uh, when they were looking to attack us back in the early two thousands, they they looked at the welfare system and were looking at the amount of people that were actually cheating the welfare system, and so, you know, one of the first things that they did was they they hired a right wing think tank to do a study and they they they. Had the it came out in the newspapers and the, and the the, the the title of the newspaper was um, or the article in the newspaper was uh, two out of ten people cheat. I know somebody who has cheated the welfare system or something like that. And it makes it sound like there's a lot of people cheating the welfare system. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you know if we're ten people and everybody knows one of those people, then you can say you know 100 percent of people know. Uh, yeah. somebody that's cheating the welfare so system. Lies, damn lies, and statistics from it. Exactly. So, mm. it, it, but what it did is it is it painted that picture that there were people cheating the welfare system.
0: Now, was this a new thing in Sweden? Was it, it's always been bipartisan support for welfare? Was an attack of that nature a new
1: phenomenon? I mean, the right has always attacked the welfare system, but um, uh, but there has been such a large acceptance for the welfare system. Mm. Uh, mainly because our welfare system isn't—it's um, not means-tested. It's something that is general for everybody. Yeah. So if you're you are getting some sort of um, uh, government rebate, uh, we don't test if you have um, you have a low-paying job or a high-paying job. Everybody gets it, and so that for us has been very, very important because what it's done is it created a, a broad acceptance for welfare in in the country, um, but. You know these these attacks on that uh, on on these democratic systems uh, were then used by the um, by the far right. So basically, when you have the the moderates coming in and saying that you know there's a lot of people cheating the welfare system, then you get the far right coming in and saying, okay, yes, we established that fact that people are cheating the welfare system. Mm-hmm. They they add that we know who is cheating the welfare system, and so they run ads where they say that you know they the. the our budget, you know, it's a competition between, you know, pensioners that, that want sort of, uh, you know, a, a decent living standard and, and immigrants that are coming in and cheating the welfare system. And so they, they build up that tension. But we have to see that, that that narrative that they have formed is actually on the back of neoliberalism. Uh, and it's crea- what they did when they created this mistrust of the welfare system, they created an, an arena for the far right to come in and actually create conflicts in between groups in society. Now, uh, I think that that is an important thing to see, that the, that the right wing and neoliberalism has broken down a lot of the, the support for our democratic institutions, but I think that it goes a lot further than that as well. I think that when they have come in and they've broken down support for, the, for democratic institutions, uh, they have broken down and privatised and hollowed out democratic structures as well. So one of the things that we have done is we've looked at the um, uh, the role of engagement in this crisis. And so one of the things that we see is that um, uh, self-governing organisations have been the, basically the playground for where people have engaged. They've been the default mode of engagement for very many people. And so since the 70s, these institutions have started to lose members so there's a narrative that it's political parties that are losing members but this is definitely not the case it's all yeah people don't join anymore people don't join anymore so when we're not a nation of joiners basically yeah. and and this is a problem both for the union movement yeah. but for political parties but also sporting clubs churches, yeah. loves, churches yeah. you name it yeah. and so what's happening is is that um, um, uh, people aren't experiencing democracy on an everyday basis in these self-governing organisations. They're not experiencing democracy. And when they don't experience democracy in as a lived experience on an everyday basis, of course they're not going to start thinking that democratic institutions can actually provide solutions to our pressing problems because they haven't experienced it before. And so I think that there is a big connection there between what is happening now and the distrust in, in political process and the way that we engage. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we also did was look at the, um, what is the effect of of party membership on election results? And so in in the 90s, the the Social Democrats had 260,000 members, uh, which was roughly 4% of everybody that voted. And when we had 4% of everybody that voted, we also got 45% in the elections. Since then, that figure has... Dropped. We've lost about 160,000 members, and we're down to about 1.2% of the voting population as a member of our party. We've also done the worst elections in our history, mm. and uh, you know this is basically a straight line down. It pegs, you know, the loss of members. Uh, another thing that we've also looked at is, um, you know, what is the role of uh, party membership in pacification is it comes from the, the Greek political party, PASOK, and uh, when they basically disappeared overnight. Yep. Uh, you know, other examples of this are the Socialists in France. Yep. Uh, we've had the Netherlands also being um Labour in Scotland. And so when we look at this, when we sort of look at you know, what are the organisations, what are the political parties that are being Pesokkified, we see that they, they basically do not have members. And so there, there seems to be uh, a critical role for members in this crisis. So how do we, what, what
0: is the key then to turn around this decline in membership if you say that there's this uh, causative relationship? How can parties encourage people to join? Because we have yeah. the same problem here with, with the Labor Party. Membership yeah. has declined mm. um, as a percentage of the population overall mm. um, and, and certainly our primary vote
1: uh, is declined. So mm. what, what is the answer there? I think that what we have to do is we have to uh, look at the nature of engagement. There are many people that are saying, and I don't know if it's the narrative here, but it's definitely the narrative in Sweden, that these these old political structures and these old political parties have got old methods of engagement. Is it, is it having a say in what the party does and its structures? Yeah, or like, you know, just getting involved in a political party is, is not a, a modern way of engaging. Uh, but the problem with this is, is that... The the way that people engage now is a new way of engaging and our political parties are also uh, engaging that same way. So we've made a shift from engaging with people to engaging with content. Mm. So when we, when we like something on Facebook, we're engaging with content. And the thing about that is that you can do it by yourself. When we engage with people, we're doing totally different things. And this is basically how... Self-governing organisations have been built up. They haven't been built up on engaging with content. They've been built up on engaging with people. And so that might be that, you know, we sit round in a local club and decide what we're going to do, which issues we're going to push. But it is a discussion between people. Uh, We sit round and we we talk about uh, doing a campaign. And, and this is the, the relational organising that we see that, that is coming up more and more. We're, we're actually rediscovering the old methods of engagement. And I, I think that that is, that is really important. The, the stuff, the innovative stuff that is being done today within the realm of engagement is actually a lot of the stuff that has been forgotten. So since the 70s, I, I mentioned before that self-governing organisations have lost members since the 70s, Is that? You know what's happened is is that we've had TV, radio, email, social media, all these mediums come that have basically uh, been mobilising mediums, and we've seen them as the as the, the new default mode of of engaging with people, um, and they're the ones that have dominated. And during this period of time, uh, when we have been predominantly been mobilising people, not organising people, we have lost leadership capacity within our organisations. And a lot of this memory of how you actually organize people and how you engage people with other people, we have lost. And so this is one of the biggest challenges that we have, is that we, we have to relearn a lot of this stuff. And not only relearn it for ourselves, but teach it to a lot, a lot of different people as well. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's going to be a long road, it's going to be a very hard road, but it, it's a road we have to travel. And you know we, we have to start now.
0: Yeah, and so you talked about you know, the disappearing acts of some of these great parties on the left and right. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking specifically about the 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 left in that example. But I'm curious about one of the you know whether or not it's causative, it's certainly correlated. The refugee crisis that existed as a result of the uh, the, the civil war in Syria and the flow and effect in Europe. What was the impact? It certainly, gets debated a lot. Um, by it's and it's been used by a lot of far right parties, uh, particularly those that have got into power in in, uh, in Eastern Europe and mm. in Hungary and others. Um, what has been the impact of of immigration um, on the uh, on the political discourse in Sweden?
1: Uh, I mean, if, that is the number one most discussed political issue at the moment, and. Um, Uh, Like I said, I mean, a lot of these narratives are built off the neoliberalist narratives um, and they use immigration as a way of, um, you know, dividing Sweden up and putting people against people. Uh, And it it has been a a tough... um, ..a tough uh, issue for us to to deal with. Absolutely. Um, And so... ..one of the... um, uh, when, when we had these, um, this, this, this uh, immigration crisis in, in Sweden, uh, we had very many people trying to come to Sweden. And so during a period of time, we had this, this massive spike of people landing in Sweden and, and wanting to seek refuge. And, you know, we, we, we didn't have the organisational capacities at the time to be able to bring that many people into to Sweden... And to make sure that we integrate them into uh, Swedish society by making sure that they have a job, that they have a place to stay, uh, yeah, just basic things that we all really, really take for granted. And so this was this was a um, a period of time that the right they they, they they tried to blame us for it, and they they always are bringing up this period of time, and you know. Of course, I mean, it was a very sort of extreme period of time and it, it meant that we had to take extreme measures to make sure that we could we could handle this. Uh, you know, it, it was cold at the time, but we had to make sure that we had a place for people to stay. So we had to basically look at every single building in the whole of Sweden and make sure that we had a place for them to stay. Some people, you know, we had to sort of make sure that the military maybe had tents to... to, to um, Uh, to house people so I mean it it was a very sort of big thing for for Sweden and very sort of tumultuous for a lot of people and you know a lot of people felt that you know things were were spiralling out of control Mm. absolutely
0: and so I'm curious about you know this because there's a debate that exists, and, and migration has always been a vexed problem in Australia, which I'm sure you're aware of. It's been politically difficult for Labor, particularly in the refugee question. Um, although uh, there's been more favourable attitudes towards permanent migration, but Europe is a little bit unique in that it has more of a borderlessness about it, and people are free to move around. Though there are sort of Sweden's a little bit different, but largely participates in that has borderlessness corroded support for democracy do you think i mean like you know, it's a big factor in the brexit debate you know taking back control i mean how does that impact because i know look at the the danes are probably one example where the labor party's done well there but they had a rather uh, uh conservative position on immigration um that they took the election so i'm curious about your take on on this borderless question and whether or not it's consistent with democracy
1: um. I think that democracy works when people feel that they can actually influence democracy. And so um, even, even before this uh, debating uh, immigration, there was always a debate about how democratic the, the, the EU actually is. And, you know, I think that the immigration is a way for people to maybe express that feeling of uh, disjointedness uh, of not being able to influence, um, but it's probably not the, uh, some of the root causes, I think. Um, I, I think that um, not having sort of like... ..not being engaged in your local society... Uh, ..if we could, can fix that and, and give people a place in society... I think that um, a lot of the, these issues will fade away uh, because people will see that they, they do have a place that they can actually influence their local societies and they will feel empowered. You know, they, I talked earlier about Olaf Palmer and uh, he has a great speech about uh, industrial society's problem and he begins the speech by talking about you know, um, you know, how much room you have, he calls it like you know, elbow room. Uh, and he says that when that starts to shrink, people will try to escape to their own private economy. And I I think that that's the case. And so, you know, our job as Social Democrats is to make sure that people actually feel that they can influence their societies. And, you know, we can have borderless societies, uh, but as long as you feel that you can influence your society and where you live, then, you know, I don't think that that's going to be a huge problem.
0: And so what about... um, You talked about economics there. I mean... One of the things that's so scary, I think, as a Social Democrat is that, you know, the country you would instinctively point to where social democracy has flourished traditionally and could flourish on ongoing basis is, is Sweden, the Scandinavian countries. A lot of people say, oh, that model can't work. Mm. And I always joke that, you know, Sweden's not a theory. It's a place you can fly to. You can literally go there. It's not Narnia. But, uh, um, you know, what is it that, you know, is there an inequality emerging in, within Swedish society economically and is that regional city divide emerging as well and are there people being felt locked out economically? Is that impacting and is it is that creating a, a, a space for the far right to try to, to, to get in and, and sell a populist message?
1: Yeah, most definitely. I think that um, uh, inequality, um, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. Um, During the time of the Social Democrats, I don't think that uh, we should feel that, um, you know, we've always done the right thing. But definitely when the right wing took over, Moderna took over in the um, after 2006, that inequality started to shoot through the roof. And so
0: right around the time of the global financial crisis.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So they took over just before, but I, I think that they, they probably used the global financial crisis as a way of actually forcing through some economic policies that basically um, weakened the labour movement, um, that made uh, employment a lot more precarious. Um, and so I think that, you know, there, there are people are feeling the effects of that things like you know having to wait for an sms to know that you have worked that day uh and these are these are problems that um you know we shouldn't have in a in a a wealthy society like sweden yeah and so these these economic problems are actually you know starting to creep up and starting to sort of you know become a problem and so we see that you know in all unequal societies, you start to have people that have things and those that don't have things. And, and so, yeah, I think that it, this is one of the, the big problems that we have to actually start to, to address. And so one of the things
0: that I find, I think, a lot of social democrats globally are struggling with is the theory, with inequality increasing, mm. theoretically that should be good conditions for a social democratic government to come to power. Yeah. And for whatever reason... Social Democratic parties throughout the world are, or centre-left parties are really struggling to connect with people and the concerns that they have. They may have some mm-hmm. policy solutions for them, but it seems that whatever it is that we're selling, people aren't buying it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, this precariousness or anxiety they feel, we're not connecting with it. And, in fact, um, perhaps it's a, we're being portrayed that way, but change seems scary. When you have so little, you only, you, you're afraid to lose even that little bit. And mm-hmm. so a risk on a Social Democratic party... Uh, becomes more difficult. What do you think is the answer to make people have faith that we have the answers for them?
1: Yeah. Um, actually, there was one part of your question that I didn't answer before about the, the divide between... Oh, the uh, regional areas. The, the regional yeah. areas. And so, I, because I think this actually ties in a little bit into what we are talking about. If you go and have a look at the... Um, in the, Social, the Swedish Social Democrats, we sing a lot of songs. Yeah. So we have our sort of workers' songs. And when you look at a lot of these songs, they are stories about people moving from the country, who often are the, the good people, moving to the city and being exploited by the bad people. So there is even in our old songs, there is this this divide.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and you know that that I think you know stays. You know, when I grew up, you know, there were there were films like City Slickers, right? Mm. And City Slickers is a derogative term for people that live in the city, right? And so, you know, this this divide it, it's always really been there. Uh, and it has been been used, uh, like you know, our songs of workers to sort of like portray what some of the injustices are there, uh, and you know this is this is still there and it's it's still a problem. But for the social democrats, we have been those that have been able to bring these diverse groups together. So one of the things that we have brought together, and, and being like this big party that can form government, is that we have both brought together progressive people but also conservative people people that uh, want a uh, some sort of welfare or security system and those that value security yeah and so we've been this amalgamation of, of these two value groups and so we've been able to talk across sort of you know almost sort of value sets but actually land in a set of progressive policies uh, and I, I think that um, you know, this is one of the, the keys to actually sort of getting back and to talking to some of these people, is that uh, we, can't, we can't also divide up our country as well and sort of say, well, these are those people that think this and we think this, we're progressives and, you know, we're social democrats. We need to actually, you know, how we've done it before is to go in and be really, really embedded in our societies and actually start, get, get these people to start talking together social democracy has never been a set of policies it's been a promise of democracy it's been a promise that together we can actually go together and influence our, our situation and i think that that's what we have to do it's interesting you talked about
0: this conservative uh, element of social democracy i think mm. increasingly it's been overlooked mm. um you know i i think a lot of the problems that we have are attitudinal mm. um, and so we tend to hector to people that are a bit more conservative, people that might be economically progressive, as you said, but have more socially conservative views. I mean, what's the? What do you think the role for people, perhaps that are uh, religious um, or, or have more socially conservative views? What is the role for them um, to play in social democratic parties? Because increasingly, I think they're looking at parties such as ours and saying, "Well, that party, I don't feel at home there anymore." Mm. You know, the Labor Party traditionally had a large Catholic element, which is,
1: mm.
0: I think. Still part of our fabric, but a, a, an increasingly minimised uh, mm. part fabric. And I'm curious about your take on that from from a uh, European perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, Sweden is a lot more secularised than what uh, Australia is. Um, that's interesting because a lot of people say Australia is quite secularised, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I mean, we have the Swedish church and, you know, up until the 90s, everybody was born directly into the Swedish church. So, so in fact, one of the largest elections outside of political elections, or the largest election outside of political elections, is the Swedish church. And so it's a big thing. And it's actually traditionally how the right wing in Sweden have come and gained power. Because what they've done is they've won in the Swedish church election, and because they get money and they, they get a position in society, it's a platform to, to run other elections. But... Um, For us, we don't have large diverse groups of uh, different religious groups. Uh, That is increasing, absolutely, because of the immigration that has happened in Sweden, but uh, religion generally does not play a role in in Swedish politics. But if you start thinking about, say, conservative and conservative values and, and their role. We traditionally have not had a large conservative bloc. This is something that is very, very new in Sweden. But it doesn't mean that those conservative views haven't been there. So, and I think that this is largely because the, the Social Democrats have been able to uh, sew together and to do it on this this idea that, you know, we, we want some sort of security. We want sort of like uh, unemployment insurance, we want a welfare state or, like, healthcare, that when we get sick, we can actually be taken care of and it, it not break the bank. And so we've been able to sort of amalgamate these groups. And I think that we have to see that if, if we're going to move forward, uh, power is through the electoral system. And in the electoral system, you need 50% plus one. And so we can't just be talking to one value group We have to be talking to multiple value groups and to make sure that we have the majority that we need to win. Uh, And so, I I mean, our electoral system is geographically based. So, you know, we have to sort of say, okay, well, who are the people that exist in in my neighbourhood? And we have to go out and talk to these people. And, you know, people that have progressive views and those that have conservative views, you know there is a possibility that they can land in the same policy platform and that's traditionally what social democrats have shown yeah but you know at the moment these these more conservative people these are the people that were leaking to the to the right wing parties and so we, we have to start talking to them and start bringing them back in and make sure we have some sort of common consensus about what we want it's not just us giving to them it's them giving giving to us as well but we have to see that our power is based on each other because the alternative is uh, more right-wing ideologies that are more individualized, that see people as, you know, sometimes a commodity within a system, but also people that that follow a powerful leader, and you know, there's not much power in that for the for these people. And like I said, we need to make people feel empowered, and so we have to start talking to them. We have to create arenas for that.
0: And so what about, I mean, one of the things I think is becoming difficult in a lot of democracies is this sort of uh, either a winner-takes-all approach to the governing, so no longer having mutual toleration, and sort of you know, maybe the way Trump has approached governing, which is basically winner-takes-all, or increasingly people just not accepting the outcome of elections or not perceiving elections to be the best way to get things done. I think of something like maybe the Extinction Rebellion, uh, which you know is a bit of a global phenomenon, but people being... Extremists in their activists, but also authoritarian in their approach to whatever issue or change they're seeking. I mean, how do you think we can still make sure that people think that the town square or politics is is the actual way to get things done? And that there's an art of compromise there, as compared to this, um, you know, the cancel culture on the left or the uh, or the you know, the right wing uh, populism on the on the right. I mean, mm. what is the answer?
1: I mean. We can't deny that we have very large and pressing problems. And a lot of the, um, lot of the problems that we face will require large and urgent action. And I, I think that that's what uh, you know, organisations like the Extinction Rebellion are talking about. They're saying that we need large and urgent action and so we're fed up with the inaction, so we need to do something. And I think that there is a lot of inaction. And I think, you know, politicians might have to take some of the blame for that. But we also have to see that we need to create the the the, the prerequisites for actually being able to tackle these urgent problems. And uh, we have to create space for innovation. Absolutely, for um, innovating in the the climate movement. We can't have the situation where we are, where we we can only present incremental politics because that incremental politics is not going to solve the environmental crisis so i think that the only option for us is to start talking to other people is to start talking in society and creating a dialogue on what this is going to take because you know people when you aggregate their their opinions that is vastly different. What, the, what, what That aggregation, what you end up in, is vastly different to, what, to when you get people to sit down in a group and to actually say, come to some sort of consensus. And, you know, when people sit and they start talking to other people, they start to empathise. And they start to be able to give up things that they didn't think that they could give up before, mainly because they've empathised with other people and they see that it's for the greater good. And I think that, you know, this was actually... What was happening in the civil society, and that's that's why engagement is so important. We need to start talking to our neighbours, and we need yeah, mixing. to start, yeah, and so once we start doing that, then I, I I fully believe that we will be able to enact the policies that we need to be able to tackle these crises. Mm. We we do have large and pressing problems, and we too need to solve them very very quick. Mm. And so, in some ways, the, these organisations are totally right. Like extinction rebellion we need to act now we do but we also need to create a dialogue mm. and that dialogue will create the space for us to tackle these problems and that's
0: a challenge i don't think there's much of a dialogue when you turn up and shut down cities and make people whose lives are already difficult more difficult i'm not sure that's a way of getting it done but the the thing actually is you're a party machine man yeah. and, and one of the things um, one of the challenges we're seeing to this discourse question is this sort of information bubble that we all live in now. You know, mm. you basically sit on Facebook or any other social media and be served up your own opinions and things that you agree with in an increasingly sort of specified manner. And the right um, uh, seem to have weaponized this in a particular way that is confounding um, social democrats globally. Mm. Um are you seeing that um, in, in Sweden? And secondly, what how can we make sure that s- these social media channels... And you 50% of people now get the majority of their news through social media. How do we make those things work for us? Mm. And how do we sort of push back against these, this advent of fake news and this sort of toxification of, mm. um, of social media?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very big problem. And I, I think that... Um, uh, again, I think a lot of this comes back to sort of how we engage with others. Um If we are to, um, okay, so if there was, there's a researcher called Erica Chenoweth, and one of the things that she has proven is that no social movement that has been able to mobilize 3.5% of the population has failed. So if you can mobilize 3.5% of the population, you'll probably succeed. And what does define and mobilize? Exactly, so to get people involved in in some sort of action. Um, And I think that that's a very good statistic. Um, because it goes to show that, you know, we probably don't need to get everybody involved, but we do need to get a certain percentage of the population involved. Another thing is, is that if we're going to get to that level, a lot of people that aren't interested in politics today is going to have to be involved in this. And the way that people generally get involved in movements is not that they see something on Facebook, feel very, very inspired, and then sign themselves up that's not how people get involved on that level so there was a guy um, called uh, i forget his name but he wrote he wrote a book called the making of pro-life activists and he basically followed people into the pro-life movement and you know these people became leaders after a while and and so he could ask them you know why did you join the movement and they said because i feel really passionate about this and you know i wanted to make a difference uh, but he had followed them in so we knew full well why they actually joined the movement to begin with and a lot of them joined the movement because a friend had dr- taken them to a meeting and so I, I think that if we are going to get to that 3.5% then we need to start bringing friends to meetings mm. uh, it, it's about sort of going through our, um, our contacts in our telephone and actually saying who are these people that we can get involved who are these people? Do I do I want to bring to a meeting and to start experiencing politics on an on an everyday basis? Basically,
0: so you say, don't rely on digital; get human to human contact.
1: I mean, the, these digital tools are just tools. So you know, I'm going to be using them to contact my friends. Um, but I, I think that we we do need to see that they're these people to people relationships. They are the most important thing in in what we're doing, uh, and. These people-to-people relationships are something that exist, you know, in real life. And, you know, if we're using digital tools to actually communicate between us, then, you know, that's great. And, you know, then digital tools do play a role. But, you know, we can talk to other people as well, ring them up, bring them to meetings. And I think that we need to start bringing people in, people that aren't 100% interested in politics today, people that maybe sort of vaguely share our values but probably haven't really sort of being able to work out very clearly for themselves where they stand on issues, but they need to be exposed to them, basically, and they need to come into our organisation. So, as an organisation as well, dealing with this, we need to basically make, create activities that we can systematically make sure that our activists are bringing new people into our organisations. And that can be done with, with online work tools, absolutely. And they, they, they make the process a lot smoother, but, You know, just like in door knocking, uh, it's the most effective method because it is face-to-face. And um, I think that we we need to see that value in in sort of being face-to-face. And even though it might seem like a long hard slog, it is actually the most effective way of getting people involved. Uh, pe- people
0: power it's old-fashioned but it works right people power no. i
1: mean it all comes down to that i,
0: I sh- just to share a, a quick story i remember i, I was studying in uh, in london recently and uh they had the guy who led macron's campaign and he came in and said uh, you know we had this secret weapon i sort of leaned in because i was curious you know there's, there's a party that came up out of nowhere and he said uh door knocking yeah, <laughs> and yeah. i was like oh well, you know like something that you know, every young activist gets taught right from the beginning right? but they used it perhaps they, had, they hadn't really used it much in France apparently it's not a really French thing to do but I thought it was fascinating that yeah. person to person is still the way to get it done yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely I mean the, the guy that was leading Macron's campaign mm. um, he he was educated by Marshall Guns mm. who is uh, you know the lead community organiser in the world uh, so yeah I mean they used that mm-hmm.
0: Well, people power is interesting because I'm, I always have a clunky segue at the end of these things right now. So the question I always ask everyone is if you're a foreigner, you've got to invite three Aussies to a barbecue. But if you're an Aussie, you've got to invite three foreigners. So I'm not sure where you <laughs> quite sit here. So I'm let, I'll let you cheat. Yeah. But, you know, uh, three people, uh,
1: well, who would they be at your barbecue and why? Um, you know, I, 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 I can't say anybody else but Olaf Palmer. I would really, really love to meet that guy. I mean, he was amazing. Uh, and, you know, if you can sort of listen to his speeches, they are fantastic. Um, so I would, I would invite him. Um, you know, I'd, w- without a doubt, invite my wife. I assume she's there,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. She's the one keeping me in Sweden. Very
1: very good, very good. Yeah, and um, I I think that I would invite... um, Ooh, who would I invite? Um, The last person. Uh, I think that I would invite... I I, I don't quite know at the moment, but it, it might be somebody from... From the film world, no right. I, I've got a keen interest in film, so I, I, I really like film. So, you know, I mean, it's interesting what's happening in the film world at the moment. Um, uh, I mean, the, you've got this massive serialisation of film, So maybe I'd invite them, one of the Marvel guys, right? To- <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> and let me talk about you know talk about that and you know how they envisioned that going and how they have succeeded at doing that so a, a superhero a
0: politician and your wife yeah, so there you, exactly. go, mate. <laughs> you got all the important ones in there mate but look um ben thanks so much for joining us it's been a pleasure having you here in australia and uh, good luck in uh, good luck in the upcoming elections in sweden yeah thank you very much it's been a pleasure being here before you run off if you could quickly jump onto iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and give the show a rating and review, it would be really beneficial. Ratings and reviews help lift the rankings of the show, make sure that algorithms are recognizing the show and showing it to other people and spreading the word. I hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time.
1: You are just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This
0: podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.